Well, thank you, Jill, and, and thank you, Helen. Um, colleagues, it's a great pleasure to speak with you today. 50 years. Much has happened since then. Much happened in 1965. Lyndon Johnson proclaimed the Great Society in his State of the Union address in early January. Martin Luther King marched on Selma and then on Montgomery. Malcolm X was assassinated. The first American ground troops arrived in Vietnam. Australia also sent troops to Vietnam. The first Students for a Democratic Society demonstration against the war drew 25,000 people to Washington. Bob Dylan released Bringing It All Back Home and extraordinarily, a few months later, Highway 61 revisited. Cosmonaut Alexei Leonov was the first person to walk in space. Japan and South Korea signed a long overdue treaty. Sonny and Schur released I Got You Babe, <laughs> which went to number one all over the world. Singapore became independent from Malaysia. There was war between Pakistan and India. Suharto crushed the Communist Party in Indonesia with a death toll of approximately one million people. The white government in Rhodesia declared its unilateral independence. The British oil platform CGEM collapsed into the North Sea, but Julie Andrews won the Academy Award for the lead in Mary Poppins. <laughs> the Social Science Research Council, now the ESRC, was formed. An SRHE began five years after the master plan in California and two years after the Robbins Report amid a great expansion of higher education in Britain. Higher education society and research over 50 years, dauntingly complex. Fortunately, we have all the apparatuses of social science and modern communications technologies and presentation skills to bring to bear on this problem. To underpin today's address, I've developed a simplified conceptual framework. I hope you will find it helpful. <laughs> I hope it's not too small. I hope you can read it. Well, never mind. Perhaps it would be better if I confine myself to a few remarks about the core issues. In doing this, I'll not attempt to cover the whole field. I want to reflect on the main idea that was shaping higher education when SRHE was founded. That still determines expectations about higher education and provides a discursive framework for much of our research. The utopian idea of society ordered as an educational meritocracy and the two faces of the meritocratic ideal, higher education as human capital, as economic progress, and higher education as a quality of opportunity, as social justice. The founding myths of modern higher education, resilient myths, each combining individual and society, structure and agency. There are tensions between them but each is essential to the meritocratic ideal. And it seems that each elevates higher education to a great role in making society. Though higher education has little control over the economic and social settings that constitute its own possibilities and limits. 
I will discuss the meritocratic tradition and research in relation to it with reference to the United States as well as the UK. And we were all, we're all aware of the important differences between the national cases. But the Anglo-American meritocratic tradition is a shared tradition, as the rest of the world sees it, certainly. It's also our tradition as education researchers. We research it, we interpret it, we critique it. We draw material sustenance from it and we bear some responsibility for it. But to fully understand the meritocratic tradition, I think we need to step outside it. We need to historicise it. Our historical understanding has been advanced by Thomas Piketty's capital in the 21st century. Piketty shows that social competition is always partly zero sum. But special circumstances after 1945 opened the way to greater social mobility and a larger role for higher education. Before World War I, inherited wealth and capital incomes at the top of society retarded upward social mobility through education and work. This changed with a massive destruction and devaluation of the great fortunes in World War I, the Great Depression and World War II. And this provided more room for upward mo mobility after 1945. The politics also changed. The legacy of the Depression and war years was a widespread determination to create a more democratic and sustaining society a more humanist society, along with faith in the efficacy of state intervention. For a while, there was continued commitment to the wartime instruments of state planning. Finance was nationalised in many countries and there was support for progressive income tax and inheritance taxes, reducing intergenerational transfer. The expansion of both state and markets facilitated property ownership. The new patrimonial middle class, which included large numbers of teachers, academics and public servants, Come to, came to play a much larger role in society. The top tax rate was high and the salaries of managers were comparatively restrained. In short, there was room at the top of society and more room also in the middle. It was the closest that the UK and the US have ever come to a meritocratic society. For the first time in history, perhaps, work and study became the surest routes to the top, states Piketty. Savings from work were the largest single source of wealth. It was widely, though not universally, agreed that the means of sorting the competition for positions in, within society should be higher education and the education work nexus. Social demand for upper secondary schooling and higher education boomed in the 1950s. Credentials multiplied and states financed this social demand, even in the United States. The 1960 Californian Master Plan and the 1963 Robbins Report codified the meritocratic role of higher education. They did so with clarity and care and elegance. In that time, though, they were also inevitable. Robbins and the Master Plan sought to combine excellence and equality, consistent with both the social and institutional hierarchies, while also providing broader pathways for movement into those hierarchies. Here, Robbins and the Master Plan did not create social mobility, they facilitated it. Arguably, the 1960s and 1970s 
see the peak of higher education's role in social allocation in the English-speaking countries, the time when secondary schooling and, public, and, and higher education were both more public and more open in themselves and also more able to facilitate social mobility, much as the allocation role is peaking now in China with its fast-growing middle class. And when mobility is maximised at the peak of the allocation function, states and taxpaying populations are more ready to finance the quality of opportunity. It's no coincidence that the most progressive education policy combines with maximum openness in the social structure. The mistake we often make is to assume that education policy alone can secure this social openness, which has a larger spread of roots. The Robbins Report, two years before the founding of SRHE, declared it axiomatic that higher education should be open to all those who are qualified by ability and attainment and, and who wish to enrol. The pool of ability, it said, is much larger than often thought. It was impossible to identify a limit. Robbins argued that the number of places should be regulated directly by social demand for places, a policy that's only now finally being implemented. Robbins also emphasised that academic quality remains the cornerstone of the system. Equality of opportunity for all need not mean imposing limitations on some. Though he, the report hoped to flatten upwards, lifting other universities closer to Oxford and Cambridge. Arguably, though, it was the Californian master plan that best captured the hierarchical democratic idealism of the 1960s. Our one general theory of higher education is the Californian idea, embodied in Kerr's idea of the multiversity, Trow's essay on mass and universal systems, and Clark's sociology of institutions and triangle of coordination. All very well-traveled territory. It's easy to forget now the original compelling attraction, the heady promise of an ever-expanding social freedom for one and all in the Californian sunshine that the master plan represented. Universal free access rising with demand, crowned by the multi-site University of California at the peak of the hierarchy, the world's strongest system of science universities. The democratic promise of the master plan rested on its pathways for upward transfer between the lower and upper tiers. Likewise, Robin stated that, quote, we attach great importance to the upward transfer function. Transfer was crucial to equality of opportunity, but in the outcome, it was largely overlooked, blocked in the UK, the impassable barrier between FE and HE, and captured by the middle class in America. Meanwhile, human capital theory was also being born, not in California, but in Chicago. Human capital theory, too, is pure 1960s. It contradicts liberal self-determined learning, but it is as, as meritocratic and optimistic as the idea of equality of opportunity. Piketty, Piketty remarks that Becker's defin, definitive work on human capital is permeated by the belief that capital other than human capital has lost its determining importance in society. Human capital is all that matters. In the human capital universe, when students acquire the right educated attributes, those that are required by business, 
then salary and excess will automatically follow. In this framework, there is no end to the social wealth that an employability-creating higher education system can create until saturation of participation is reached. This is far from the, a Bordeauxian zero-sum competition for social position, where the prospects of each person are limited by the positions and trajectories of others. Human capital theory created impossible expectations. Higher education was now responsible, not just for social justice, but for economic growth. But it was all politically saleable. And the idea of merit as learned and portable ability also had a legitimating power. Utopian human capital theory, floating free from other forms of capital, implied that those with social advantages had succeeded not because of birth and social connections, but because of their abilities and their powers of application. In this curious backhand way, human capital theory modernised privilege and made social scientists complicit in the agendas of privilege though their own normative commitment was to equality of opportunity. Since the 1960s, these two meritocratic paradigms have dominated social research into higher education. Researchers have focused on widening equal opportunity to more of the population, identifying subpopulations, and also identifying barriers to equality. Others have focused on sealing and smoothing the fragmented passage between the heterogeneous zones of education and work, or tried to target education investment through one of the literally tens of thousands of studies that have now been done of private rates of return. Yet despite the growth in participation, distributional equality of opportunity seems further off than ever. The transition to work still harbours mysteries and we are no closer to closure on returns to education. Arguably, there are two overlapping reasons for the failure of research to nail these problems and to guide a more informed and enlightened policy. One, intrinsic weakness in the found one is the intrinsic weaknesses in the founding utopian notions. The second is that the conditions governing society, policy and higher education since the 1980s have been especially detrimental to equality of opportunity, with a partial exception of gender equality. I'll start with human capital theory. Human capital theory assumes that education determines marginal productivity and marginal productivity determines earnings. With some caveats, the value of investment in education is a function of lifetime earnings. These are heroic assumptions. First and fundamentally, as the OECD puts it in the recent education at a glance, a host of education-related and context-related factors affect the returns to education. Analysis tries to remove all factors other than the education itself, but this means separating elements that are not wholly separable, and the residual is often a weak rather than strong relationship, because as Aram and Roxon note, colleges have little control over wage outcomes. Earnings are affected by social background, family income, school type, social and family networks at the point of entry to higher education, networks in the transition to work, and networks throughout the career. Custom and hierarchy in professions and workplaces, 
wage determination and the industrial relations balance of power, and of course, national and regional economies. Second, it's difficult to accurately attribute enhanced value to individual employees in a combined workplace. Third, students often fail to follow a human capital logic in real life. The private benefits associated with education include social status as well as incomes, as Tro noted in 1973. Many studies find that status effects, status signals and variations in status by field of study or type of institution appear stronger than income effects. Prospects of assuming a managerial role seem especially important to many people, often more important than earnings. This is particularly the case for graduates from prestige institutions and those with generic degrees working in the public and NGO sectors, which includes many women. Moreover, students rarely take foregone earnings into account and mostly know only about earnings in their chosen occupation, not those in related and other fields. Fourth, the fit between higher education and labour market occupations is only partly coherent, especially for generic degrees and also for the many graduates who work outside their fields of training, which often, but not always, generates in income penalties. Fifth, some studies find that the relationship between graduation and earnings is non-linear. The apparent income effects of higher education are magnified at the top end of incomes, though here also the effects of family background on job and income are also magnified. The income effects of attending an elite institution tend to blow out at this level and field of study differences in earnings fade away. In combination, these findings suggest that family connections and supermanager salaries drive returns at the top end. Higher education has less effect on high income earners than on people in the middle. I'll turn now to equality of opportunity. Here the main intrinsic limit is the persistence of irreducible differences between families in economic, social and cultural resources. Policy can partly compensate for economic differences but cannot eliminate the potency of the family in cultural capital and social networks and how far do we think that the state should go in that area. As competition intensifies though, these effects are heightened. They are reduced only by shifting social selection away from education, lowering the stakes. A second intrinsic limit is the differentiated capacity to realise aspirations. In mid-secondary school, aspirations to enter higher education are very broadly spread. But students from low SES backgrounds and remote locations tend to underestimate their academic potential, are less willing to take risks and are less familiar with performance and application strategies. What is also striking is the extent to which actual systems have magnified these intrinsic inequalities. This is apparent in two large-scale research studies published two years ago, 2013. In the United States, in a brilliant study, Hoxby and Avery conducted a census-level research of all applications to higher education in the United States. Every application was in the study. They found that the vast majority of low-income high achievers do not apply to any selective college. The vast majority of low-income high achievers do not apply to any selective college. Despite the fact that the selective colleges will offer them a lower tuition price than non-selective colleges because of generous financial aid packages. 
These low-income high achievers have different application behaviours to high, their high-income counterparts. They offer safe choices. Typically, they are from districts too small to support selective high schools. They lack a mass of fellow high achievers. They are unlikely to encounter a teacher who attended a selective college, and they make application decisions without knowing their capabilities or even their scores. In the United Kingdom, in a similar study, a study of similar importance, I think, Bolivar finds that there are continued and dramatic class differences in access to elite universities. Quote, UK's applicants from lower class backgrounds and from state schools remained much less likely to apply to Russell Group universities than their comparably qualified counterparts from higher class backgrounds and private schools. While Russell Group applicants from state schools and from black and Asian ethnic backgrounds remained much less likely to receive Office of Admission from Russell Group universities in comparison with their equivalently qualified peers from private schools and the white ethnic group. In other words, for many disadvantaged students, they're less likely to apply despite equivalent qualifications and more tellingly, if they do apply, they're less likely to be offered a place. A key factor reducing equality is that students must file applications before their final school results are known and every effort to shift this date has been resisted by the universities. This increase is under matching but disturbingly Bolivar shows that inequality of opportunity is also built into university admissions. A third intrinsic limit on quality of opportunity is structural. The tendency of expanding higher education systems to differentiate between or within subsectors on the basis of unequal value. When there is structured differentiation of value, for example, between state and private schools or different tiers of, or types of HEI, then families with prior social advantages are best placed to compete. Financial barriers such as tuition fees accentuate prior social differences unless they, those tuition fees take the form of income contingent loans, though even there we can expect an upper limit. <coughs> Nevertheless, Nordic education shows the policy, regulation and funding can limit differences in the status and resources of schools and HEIs at a high level of quality. Inequality of opportunity takes its most concentrated form when these factors intersect, for example, in networking into or within elite structures. In, a, in an interesting qualitative study of students at Oxford and Science Po, Follin and, and colleagues show how they use connections to gain entrance into the upper echelons of the graduate labour market. The students distinguish, interestingly, between good and bad networks. Good networks are grounded in smarts and academic merit. Bad networks, of course, are based on the family and, 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 and naked ambition. The merit principle is still needed, it seems, but it plays out in restricted circles. This is confirmed in Lauren Rivera's brilliant research on the hiring practices of, of leading banks, consulting and law firms in the United States. These firms hire exclusively from Harvard, Yale, Princeton and Stanford and Wharton MBAs. The other schools are all seen as second rate. It's not the content of the top Ivy League education that they value, but its prestige. They attribute superior qualities to these graduates simply because they were selected into the top, very top universities regardless of their academic performance once inside. And also they select on the basis of, their, of, of, of graduates who exhibit 
the extracurricular accomplishments that are also associated with entry into the Ivy League institutions. And this is to, in order to achieve a, a, a neat fit, a neat cultural fit between those elite graduates and their, and their working partners in the elite firms. Now, so far I've explained the failings of 1960s meritocracy in terms of the flaws in the idea, which are articulated through its weak and partial implementation. Government and education it's, itself have lacked sufficient commitment, perhaps. Marketisation and austerity have certainly eroded that commitment. We're on the brink of blaming our old friend neoliberalism for everything again, as if we are governed by policy in isolation from the larger social world. But that is where we need to look. Piketty explains that income inequality is the aggregation of inequality of income from labour and inequality of income from capital in the form of financial holdings, property and so on. Most people, of course, earn the majority of their income from labour. Only the top 0.1% earn the majority of their, of their income from capital. Both labour and capital incomes are affected by taxation policy, which can increase or decrease inequality. Piketty also shows that societies relatively equal in their distribution of income and wealth tend to maximise social mobility, which in turn provides the greatest scope for the allocative role of higher education. In this regard, the Anglo-American countries now look very different to the way they looked between the 1950s and the 1970s. In 1970s Scandinavia, the most equal of the modern societies, the top 1% received 7% of all income. In Europe in 2010, the top 1% received 10% of all, of all income. In the United States in 2010, though, the top 1% received 20%. The level in the UK is about 15%. The US is expected to reach 25% by 2030. But of course, in 2010, the top 1% of the United States achieved this level more through labour income and less through inherited capital than was the case in old Europe. There's been an explosive growth of managerial salaries in the United States and in the UK, much of it, though not all of it, in the finance sector. Highly paid managers often set their own remuneration. This is a more modern, quasi-meritocratic kind of inequality, which is centred on control over work and control over other people's remuneration. Income in the United States is now remarkably unequal by historical standards. The UK is also nearing a historic high. Salary inequality is partly balanced by the property of the patrimonial middle class, though this is slowly losing ground. But in the next generation, when today's super manager's salary becomes tomorrow's inheritance, society will close up further at the top. Traditional wealth will become more important than it is now and the income share at the bottom will continue to decline. The trend to concentration at the top was broken only briefly by the 2008 to 10 recession. In the US, the top 1% recovered quickly, securing 93% of all the additional income generated in the United States in 2009-2010, those two years. That's where the bailout package went. While the average homeowner lost a third of their property value. The top group has moved above its pre-recession levels, 
already in both the United States and the United Kingdom. Piketty's argument is that the trend to inequality is endogenous to the capitalist economy. Capital accumulates, and over time this tends to narrow or block the pathways to upward social mobility. Unless there is a prolonged period of high economic growth or a vigor vigorous policy and an egalitarian social consensus about keeping upward mo upwardly mobile pathways open, as is the case not only in Scandinavia, but in other parts of Europe. But neither of these things has happened in the US and the UK. Now this endogenous trend is perhaps the starting point for the political developments of the last three decades, the neoliberal era. Relatively static societies in terms of mobility, in which elites are concentrating their economic power, are open to plutocratic capture of politics. It happens in some polities, it seems it does not happen in all polities. In the US and the UK, there's now much talk about plutocratic capture led by the finance sector. Stiglitz in particular targets finance. Elite capture is signified and strengthened by tax policy. The top US marginal tax rate went from 70% under Carter to 28% under Reagan up to 40% again under Clinton and back to 35% under Bush. And with a lot of difficulty, Obama has managed to nudge it up to 39.6%. Capital is taxed at a lower rate than labour. In the UK, the top tax rate of 45% kicks in when income reaches 150,000 a year, compared to 50,000 in Austria and the Netherlands. Piketty remarks, taxation is perhaps the most important of all political issues. Without taxes, society has no common destiny and collective action becomes impossible. In this context, the regulation of UK education policy in the interest of elite stakeholders is a minor part of a larger political project and it becomes easy to understand. But it not only violates the quality of opportunity, it is also tearing the meritocratic mask away from human capital theory. If the UK and the US, if, if in the UK and the US the growth of social and economic equality is taking place in societies in which formal participation in higher education is, it is at an historic high, then does this mean that higher education is responsible for the patterns of unequal earnings? Assumptions about marginal productivity would suggest that it is. Yet higher education has little effect on the surge in top incomes. 1990s explanations that growing inequality is triggered by increased demand for technologically intensive labour have now been overwhelmed by the supermanager phenomenon. Human capital equations are unable to explain the often striking variations in graduate incomes over time, such as the growth of income inequality at the top end of the workforce, as well as differences between countries whose higher education seems to be relatively similar. Economic history, rather than economics, suggests that the social allocation function of higher education is not a constant, but conditioned by the larger social, economic and political setting. This social allocation role of higher education is not only being boxed in by the larger inequalities, it also becomes segmented within societies. Geiger suggests that elite higher education plays a primary role in distinguishing the upper middle class, those who nestle in the top 1 to 5%, rather than the wealth holding 0.1%, from the, 
from the more beleaguered middle, middle class. Above the upper middle level, elite business and professional degrees certify some entrance into leading law and finance firms, as Rivera shows. However, super rich, among the super rich, the role of higher education is probably declining overall. As private fortunes grow and inheritance returns to a primary role, university becomes less rather than more necessary. In the US, Soares finds that just 22% of the children of high-income professional families enrol in Tier 1 and 2 universities and colleges, and only 14% of children from high-income non-professional families. For most rich families, Ivy League, essential is not, Ivy League education is not essential. In fact, 19% of the children of all high-income professional families and 36% of the children of other high-income families do not attend college at all. If the wealthy and powerful become more decoupled from higher education, this will further fragment the social commitment to higher education, especially mass higher education, as a common project. The paradox, of course, is that higher education remains potent in creating new prospects for individual students from low SES backgrounds who lack capital. Research by Brandon Shee and Dale and Kruger finds that students from social groups underrepresented in higher education gain the largest benefits from it relative to their compatriots who do not participate, and also benefit especially from education in elite HEIs. Conversely, students from socially advantaged backgrounds depend on higher education the least for access to social status, income and professional work, though they participate at the highest rate. What higher education cannot do on its own, despite the supply-side promise of human capital theory, is expand the number of high-value positions in society to create more room in the middle and the top. In the absence of growth in the number of opportunities, competition within education can only become more intense as families jostle for position and bring every asset to bear on the competition to secure advantage. Until the political economy changes, that is the future for UK higher education until the political economy changes. What about the non-English speaking world? In, in a review of inequality of educational opportunity in 24 countries, Heyman Shabbat remarked that in most countries for which data are available, inequality declined in the first decades after World War II and then tended to stabilise or increase. But the patterns are divergent. Related to this, overall economic inequality is increasing in two-thirds of countries and diminishing in the other third. And in Nordic, Norway, Denmark, Finland and Sweden, these polities have been largely successful in containing inequality with small increases, maintaining a relatively equal income distribution and high mobility. And the same has happened in the low countries. These OECD data provide one measure of intergenerational social mobility for higher education. The slide compares the odds of getting to tertiary education for two groups of students. Those with one or more parents who attended tertiary education and those whose parents did not attend tertiary education. In the United States, students from tertiary educated families are 6.8 times as likely to access tertiary education as students whose parents did not attend. 6.8 times, low mobility. 
UK ratios are similar. In Germany and Japan, the ratio is still 5 to 0.1. In, in the Netherlands, it falls to 2.8. In the Scandinavian countries, it's between 1.4 in Finland and 3.0 in Denmark. In South Korea, it's 1.1. It's encouraging to know that a more equal higher education system in social terms is possible. What can we conclude from the first 50 years then? I've been critical, but we can also claim successes. The level of participation has advanced remarkably, not just in the UK, but everywhere, lifting the common social and scientific literacy. One third of the world's school leavers now participate in some form of tertiary education, which in many respects resembles that which is practiced in our own country. The female to male ratio of total years of education has lifted from 82% in 1990 to 91% in 2010, not yet parity in total, not parity in high value programs or institutions, not parity in positions of educational leadership, but gender gaps have partly closed. Where we have failed is in our hope that an expanding and more democratic higher education system could reduce the savage lifelong discriminations of the British class structure. We knew that it would be difficult. We didn't know that we would fail. We know that in some parts of the world, higher education is associated with successfully egalitarian approaches. But the lesson of the last 50 years, I think, is that higher education cannot make an egalitarian society or socially just society, if you like, on its own. We should set aside the hubris that higher education, whether it's called a knowledge economy or something else, is the principal maker of social relations. In aggregate, what happens with income and wealth, labour markets, taxation, government spending, social programs and urban development are much more important. This suggests that as researchers we need to take a more active interest in the larger inequality debate, focusing on the junctions between higher education and other sectors. In relations between higher education and the labour market, perhaps we need to move beyond primary reliance on concepts of rates of return and employability, which confer undue determining power on higher education, and follow Rivera and Tholen and others by developing a more complex and nuanced and empowering picture of the passage from education to work. We also need to give more attention to transfer and to the other relations within a hierarchical higher education system and to follow Vicky Bolivar's concern with social access into elite institutions. The example of the University of California shows that elite universities can practice a more egalitarian entry policy than Oxford and Cambridge even in a more unequal society and polity as in the United States. And yet Berkeley and UCLA are as high in their academic standards as any university in the country. But above all, we need to renew the focus on building stronger mass higher education institutions and further education institutions. It's these institutions, rather than the research intensive subsector that is the focus of most of what we do, where quality is being emptied out by hyper-competition and austerity. But these institutions carry the main responsibility for social learning. Educational research cannot identify the alchemy by which sub-elite credentials can be turned to gold. 
what we can do is identify the social conditions and pedagogical barriers within which mass HEIs work. If for the foreseeable future we are doomed to educate a society lauded over by a new aristocracy of money in a political economy becoming ever more unequal by the day, then let it be a more intelligent, more informed and more confident society in which agency is more broadly distributed than now. This kind of society is the least likely to tolerate the loss of the common wheel and the most likely to renew the forward-looking democratic spirit, which was the best of 1965 when SRHE was founded. Today's proceedings are an opportunity to renew that spirit. I thank you sincerely for listening and I hope we have some time for discussion.